This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. In our 230th episode, we have a bunch of dinosaur news, including some amazing new skin impressions, some new research into dinosaur eggshells and egg thickness, and lots of museum news. And we have Dinosaur of the Day, Jeholosaurus. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons who help us keep our podcast going. And this week, we'd like to thank Scotty, Megan Dixon, Kessler, Tristan Jules, Grandpa Dino, Rhinosaurus, Morgan Eklove, Dr. Eigenbot, Lori, Risa, Kelly, Manda, Laurasaurus, Timmy, James Pasco, Gabe, and Courtney. Yeah, thank you so much, everybody. As Garrett mentioned, we really couldn't do the show without you guys are patrons, so really appreciate all that you do. And for anyone who wants to join this growing community, then check out our page at patreon.com slash I know Dino. I also wanted to mention that all of the tiers in Patreon include access to our premium content feed, which includes unabridged interviews. So both Alita and Darren, two of the most recent interviews, both had extended versions in the premium content feed. And we have another great interview coming up next week. And since the full interview is about 40 minutes long, I'm guessing that we'll probably have to pare that down and it'll probably be in the premium feed too. If you're interested in getting a longer version of some of these interviews, then definitely think about signing up for our Patreon. Jumping into the news, our first article is back in the Jinju City area in South Korea. And the article is by Kyung Soo Kim, and others and published in scientific reports. And every time I see this, I'm like, oh man, we were in Jinju City right near all of this really cool stuff and had no idea. <laughs> we'll just have to go back. I guess so. It's kind of hard to get to. It's kind of like central South Korea. And most of the stuff is in the Northwest or the Southeast. You can say that about any dinosaur area though. That's true. Yeah, for the most part. <laughs> so we've talked about this area before. And we talked about a trackway there not too long ago with some really small tracks. They were only about a centimeter long. It was named Dromaeosauriformipes rarus, that like whole mouthful. And they were only like a centimeter long, these really tiny tracks. And at first I thought this article was just the same paper, or at least talking about the same tracks. But it turns out it's talking about new tracks. These are in the Minosauripus group. And 
I should say these five because there are actually five total tracks. There's four that are in a trackway and then there's one unassociated print from the same area. So they kind of lumped it together into the same paper. So Minosaurpus is a theropod with footprints that are about two to three times the size of Dromaeosauriformipus rarus. So they're like two to three centimeters in general long. <laughs> Still very small. <laughs> you probably could have guessed that from the name. Minosauripus. Yeah, for a while it was the smallest footprint, thus the name, but now we have the smaller one, which I don't want to say again. <laughs> They're from the early Cretaceous, about 120 to 112 million years ago. And the thing that makes them so amazing is the level of detail in the tracks. So this is what I was hinting at with the skin impressions. The skin impressions are actually from the bottom of the feet. And the tracks have really a micrometer level of precision of the scale shape. Wow. So they're already very small, you know, two to three centimeters long, it's about an inch long. And then you have to put it under a microscope to really see the detail of these scales because it's such a small print that the scales are also very small. And in the microscope, what you can see is that a patch of about two millimeters by two millimeters, I'm not gonna bother converting that to <laughs> English units because it's so small, but in just a two millimeter by two millimeter area, you find between about 15 and 30 scale impressions mm. in that little tiny space. So that's several individual scales in a square millimeter of space. So very, very small scales. And it's amazing that what they stepped in had the kind of preservation qualities yeah. to like keep that for all those millions of years. It's, it's just amazing. So obviously... The number of scales depends on the part of the foot or really the part of the toe since most theropods walked on kind of their tiptoes and these of course are theropods. They call them quote the highest resolution of detail yet recorded for any dinosaur skin impressions end quote. And I think that's believable because they're pretty amazing when you look at them. Really when you see them and you don't pay attention to the scale bar you think it's like a sort of typical theropod track that might be like a foot long. And then but, you realize how small it is. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a tenth of that. You know, it's more like an inch long. So it's these little tiny things, but there's still so much detail in the print. And the key to the fact that they're so detailed seems to be that the skin didn't slip or slide when the dinosaur was walking. So it it's like it stepped down either just vertically in like one motion and then right back up, hmm. or it kind of rolled its foot as it went through, but it didn't slide at all when it rolled off like a lot of times happens the kind of toes end up slipping back a little bit during the step especially if the substrate is kind of soft like when you walk in sand you end up leaving these big divots <laughs> where right. your toes are that clearly didn't happen in this case and they think it might be because it was a relatively hard substrate with a very thin layer of mud on top of it and then mud with like some really fine grain sediment to it and then that quickly got buried over with a little bit more mud and thus this amazing preservation. And I think in order for this preservation to really take hold, you need that second layer to be of similar sort of quality <laughs> to the under layer, because if you had something really coarse on top of it, it's not gonna preserve the bottom layer because there's gonna be too many air gaps and stuff. But once in a while, things work out perfectly. <laughs> it's crazy how many things have to work out perfectly. Yeah, I think they said like, in an interview that 99% of fossil footprints don't have any skin impressions, but then this one obviously does. So they use some simple math and ratios to try to figure out the size of the animal. And it's like, 
<laughs> the amount of precision they assigned to it is kind of crazy to me. But they say the tracks are about 2.38 centimeters long, or just under an inch. And then based on their ratios, they think it was 10.71 centimeters, or 4.2 inches tall at the hip, which again is very, very precise <laughs> for pacing it on just the length of a foot. And that it was about 28.4 centimeters, or 11.1 inches long. So you're talking about a dinosaur that's a little less than a foot long, and about the height of maybe like the palm of your hand or the palm of your hand plus part of your thumb, depending on how big your hand is. So pretty small little dinosaur. Sounds cute. But even though they describe it as blackbird sized, they don't think it was actually particularly bird-like. So this isn't one of those dinosaurs that's basically just a bird. <laughs> and thus it's like, well, of course it's small because birds tend to be small. Really, they think that its toes show that it was kind of in a more normal theropod type position. And like I was saying before, when you look at the print, it's not really indicative of a very small animal. It's got the typical three-toed theropod with a longer toe in the middle sort of look to it. There's nothing particularly crazy about the way the footprint looks until you get it under a microscope and see all the detail, or maybe if you just realize how small it is. <laughs> they also tried to estimate the speed of the animal. That's one of the cool things you can usually do with trackways. And based on its hip height and the distance in between the tracks, and the hip height is based on the size of the foot, they think it was walking between 8.19 and 9.27 kilometers an hour, which is about five to six miles an hour. That seems fast for that size. Yeah, it's pretty quick. Although I always think of those birds that you see on the beach. Oh, right. And they like- The plovers. Yeah, they yeah. scooter around so quick. Like you can run after them and sometimes they'll still be on the ground without taking off. Right. And still <laughs> keeping up with you. And it looks like their feet aren't even touching the ground. Yeah, you can't even see how fast their legs move. They dart back and forth so quick. So yeah, I mean, it's still pretty quick though. That's faster than- a normal person walks, that's probably like the peak of speed walking sort of territory. One really crazy thing about the tracks is that they seem to intersect with some pterosaur handprints, which are just huge by comparison. Really, <laughs> these pterosaur prints, they're only about 14 centimeters or five and a half inches long and about half as wide, but it looks like just like giant gouges in the earth compared to this little tiny trackway. Does it look like they could crush the dinosaur? Yeah, it's like, it doesn't even look on the same scale. It's just, it's insane, the difference in size. They didn't talk too much about what the pterosaur might have been doing there. They think maybe the pterosaur prints were laid down a little bit later. And they said there's a slight chance that it was swimming, but they said usually that would be a footprint, not a handprint. I like to think that it was maybe hunting these little guys. No, no. <laughs> it's so much bigger. It's like about the right scale where it would be like still a good snack. Right. You know? If it's fast enough. Yeah. I mean, pterosaurs can fly, so True. this little guy probably couldn't. <laughs> Another thing I thought was kind of interesting is they say that all Minnesaurus tracks have been less than 6.1 centimeters or 2.4 inches long. But previously, I think in a fun fact, I found some article talking about how there have been larger ones attributed to Minnesaurus. So I'm guessing that these authors just don't consider those to actually be Minnesaurus. They probably want to assign them to some other genus. So... I guess it depends on who you ask. But if you take these authors' word for it, you can probably infer that Minnesaurus is a very small species and not just a bunch of juvenile tracks because we do have, I think, like 60 or so of these Minnesaurus tracks. And the fact that they're all really small from like different locations too makes you think, yeah, 
<laughs> they're probably not all just happen to be juveniles, you know. Pretty cool, though. Mm -hmm. And since it was published in Scientific Reports, it's open access, so you can see all these pictures if you're interested. Nice. Including the crazy pterosaur print. Since I'm so unfamiliar with pterosaur prints, it just looks like this crazy, huge, weird shape. It doesn't even look like a track to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they would be different, especially their hands. Yeah. Up next, we've got a update on an article from last year's SVP that has finally been published. And the article is by Cohen Stein and others and was published in Scientific Reports. So our summary during the SVP presentation was that early dinosaurs had thin, semi-rigid eggs. And then in the early to mid-Jurassic, the eggs got a lot thicker, possibly as a solution to the quote-unquote dehydration predation effects. So that was kind of where we were six months ago, seven months ago. Has it changed? At SVP. Yeah, they added a little bit more information in this article, which isn't surprising because in SVP, you got about 15 minutes to try to get out as much as you can. They gave some really helpful context saying that we have very few eggs from the, quote, first third of the known 315 million year history of amniote evolution, end quote. That's a long time. It is. And I've talked a little bit about how, you know, when we assume that fish kind of came out of the ocean and then they had to have a new type of egg because you can't just lay them in water anymore. So you need some kind of like fancier amniote egg. And with all the modern reptiles and lizards and all sorts of things, a lot of them lay eggs. So we've always assumed that these early amniotes laid eggs too. Interestingly, if you're talking about the first third of amniote evolution, it's not only the Triassic, but it also includes the Permian and even a little bit of the Carboniferous. So we're talking about really, really old stuff. And it again kind of points to how quick those ages go versus the Cretaceous, <laughs> which lasted a lot longer. So the eggs from basically every group in the Cretaceous are really thick. However, the oldest dinosaur eggs that we have are from the early Jurassic, about 195 to 192 million years ago. And they're all sauropodomorphs and they're all really thin. So these eggs include Massospondylus from South Africa, Lufungosaurus from China, and Musaurus from Argentina. So we've got three different continents, and they all are from the early Jurassic in that same period, around 195 million years ago, and they're all really thin. So we're seeing that even though in the Cretaceous, we see these thick eggshells all over the place, when you go back to the Jurassic, the three samples that we have at least are all very thin, which all seem to be from sauropodomorphs. Unfortunately, it'd be nice if we had some other dinosaurs in the mix too. But way back then, we didn't have a lot of the types of dinosaurs that we got to in the Cretaceous. We still had theropods, so it'd be nice to see some theropod eggs, but you know, you're not going to find any ornithopod eggs or oviraptor eggs, like, you know, are some of the more common ones in the Cretaceous because they hadn't evolved yet. I was surprised the author said that these eggs also represent, quote, the earliest confirmed amniote eggshells recorded in the fossil record, hmm. end quote, which I could have sworn I'd seen fossilized eggs from the Triassic or the Permian before. And I did some Googling around and I did find some reports of it, but then I found they were kind of contested whether or not they were valid, like reptile eggs from the Triassic. Right. It does say earliest confirmed. Yeah, I think that's what they're going for. Like these are pretty solid versus some of the earlier ones might not be. One thing I thought was really interesting is that some of these eggs are so thin that they were mistaken for crocodilian eggs when they were first discovered. 
So they thought like it must have been an ancient crocodile that laid them. And they really do have some structural similarities with modern crocodile eggs, just like the way that the layers are formed. And on top of that, the typical thickness of one of these eggs is about 100 micrometers or only a tenth of a millimeter. Wow. Which is very thin. It's only about a third of the thickness of a chicken eggshell. And I know in the past we've talked about how much thicker <laughs> dinosaur eggs tend to be than chicken eggs. So, for example, titanosaur eggs later in the evolution, you know, down in the Cretaceous are more like 2,000 micrometers or two millimeters, which, you know, is several times thicker than a chicken egg. So this article really focuses on why might these eggs be so much thinner in the early days and what that might tell us about evolution. So they talk a little bit about the predation and the fact that they can hold moisture better when they're thicker. So obviously it's harder to chew through them. (laughs) Say you're a little mammal and you're trying to get into an eggshell. If it's a tenth of a millimeter, it's pretty easy to crack. If it's two millimeters thick, it's a lot more difficult. Figure out something else. Yeah. Yeah. It always reminds me of that scene in The Rescuers Down Under <laughs> where that reptile is trying to eat the egg mm-hmm. and it like can't get its mouth all the way around it and it like doesn't know what to do about it. Right. <laughs> but if you had a really thin eggshell, you might not have to get your mouth all the way around just it. You crack could probably it. just squeeze it anyway. Yeah. But if it's two millimeters thick, you're going to end up like that guy. <laughs> so aside from those obvious benefits... The other thing that they focused on in this article is the oxygen levels in the environment during these different periods of time. So they say, quote, the geocarb-sulf model suggests atmospheric oxygen levels dropped during the Permian and Triassic from an all-time high, 32 to 33% in the late Carboniferous, to an all-time low, 15% in the early Jurassic, end quote which is obviously a pretty precipitous drop. And that Permo-Triassic boundary was considered an anoxic event. So, you know, a lot of things were dying from lack of oxygen. Mm -hmm. And obviously that might've affected eggshells too, because when you have an egg, the animal inside it still needs air. It still needs oxygen to develop. So what happens is the air has to actually diffuse through the eggshell, which is a little bit of a slow process. And since it's not actively moving the oxygen in, like breathing, the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere makes a really big difference. So when the oxygen level drops, it doesn't diffuse through as quickly. And one way to counter that is to have a thinner eggshell, and then it can kind of make up for that effect. Makes sense. Yeah. So they think that that might have caused these eggshells to get thinner or maybe stay thin, depending on how thick they started out. And then by the middle and late Jurassic, they say that oxygen was approaching modern levels. But when I looked at, they have a graph of this geocarb sulf model, <laughs> which is, it's just like a line of the oxygen content over time. And what you see is that there was another drop off right around the Jurassic Cretaceous boundary that went almost back down to about 15%. But obviously, it didn't fall as far because it had only gotten up to like 18%. So rather than dropping from 30% down to 15, it went from like 18 to 15. So maybe the eggshells had changed in the meantime, like the structure of it had changed and allowed more oxygen to get through. And then they didn't have to get as thin again or something. This is just me randomly speculating. <laughs> but they didn't really talk about that in the paper. They kind of made it sound like, oh, yeah. And then, you know, it. By the mid-Jurassic, it was back up to modern levels, but it really wasn't. It's a little more complicated than that. And then it didn't really make its way up to modern levels, which is about 21%, until the early Cretaceous, which is about 120 million years ago in their model. And 
then it even surpassed it a little bit, went up to like 22, 23, 24%. So by that point, it's like, okay, yeah, maybe now we can have a nice big thick eggshell again. <laughs> <laughs> or at least they were definitely doing it. So it must have worked one way or another. So this is usually when we say we need more fossils, but if the eggshells were that thin, I don't know how likely the it is odds. that we're going to find them in the Triassic. Yeah. Especially when so few have been found so far. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy that we haven't found anything before the early Jurassic. There's like a hundred million years when we think things were laying eggs. Maybe the shells were even thinner. Maybe. I think when we talked to Eric Sibyshevsky, he was saying too that eggshell just doesn't preserve nearly as well as bone. So can be a lot harder to find in older sediment than things like bone. Mm -hmm. And I know even just like the wrong pH can dissolve eggshell a little bit easier than bone too, especially if it's thin. One thing they also mentioned in there that I just need to say <laughs> is they were wondering why dinosaurs never evolved laying live young because we see it in a lot of other lineages around the same time. And it's like if they were laying such thin eggshells and they, you know, presumably were pretty easy to prey upon, why wouldn't some of them just evolve viviparity at that point? But they didn't really. Obviously, you're not going to learn much about that from some old thin eggshells. Right. Could be that they were too vulnerable if they were gestating alive for a live birth. Yeah. Yeah, could be. Or that they just didn't do the whole parental care thing. So Yeah, that too. Investing the extra in live young didn't matter as much. I don't know. Although there's evidence of some parental care, but not for all of them. Yeah. It's still pretty speculative, so it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. And one last article I want to mention was in Acta Paleontologica Polonica. <laughs> and I know I butchered that by Thomas Raven and others. It's behind a paywall, but that doesn't really matter because it's just almost like a one sentence summary I want to give. Basically, they looked at the quote purported ankylosaurian dinosaur Bienosaurus lufengensis. And by their use of purported, you could guess that they don't actually think that it should be called a dinosaur anymore. <laughs> and that's exactly what the paper was about. So they're saying Bionosaurus is a nomen dubium and there's nothing unique about it. Hmm. Which when looking at the history of Bionosaurus isn't too surprising because it's been placed in a lot of different groups from really general to really specific, including some people just call it an ornithischian which is about as general as you can possibly get with a dinosaur. It's almost like saying it's a dinosaur. Yeah. <laughs> We can tell it's a dinosaur. Here's a name for it. <laughs> uh, it's also been called a Thyreophoran, like an indeterminate one. And some people have even called it an Ankylosaurian, which I guess is the one they find the most ridiculous given the title. So yeah, probably a nomen dubium right now. You know, someone else might make a paper and say like, no, it isn't. Here's why it counts as its own genus and could settle out that way. But looking at the remains that we have, it, it seems like they're probably onto something. Moving on to museum news, the Field Museum in Chicago recreated the night sky of the Cretaceous period, and you can see video projections of it next to the new Sioux exhibit. There's a team that worked to determine the location and movement of some of the stars of the Milky Way 66 million years ago, and they had to figure out where the stars moved and what speeds they moved at. So, as you can imagine, the sky looked really different back then. The hope with this exhibit is to, quote, add an extra layer of immersion to the experience with Sue. Yeah, that's really cool. It would be totally lost on me, though. I don't think I can recognize where any stars are supposed to be. <laughs> Not even the North Star or the like, Big Dipper? Yeah, but I mean, when you're in the room, I don't know if I'd know which way is North anyway. Well, it would look really different. Apparently, 
you wouldn't be able to recognize where the Big Dipper is back then. Yeah, I feel like I can't find that most of the time anyway. Oh, okay. <laughs> It'd be kind of cool if they showed the like the transition, you know, like here's what it looked like then and then like compare it to now. Oh, yeah, maybe. But otherwise it's like, I, yeah, it would be lost on me. It's a nice touch though. It is, and a lot of work and effort put into it. Yeah, I can't imagine. I don't even know how you figure that out. In Michigan, the University of Michigan Museum of Natural History, they opened a new museum that has a Majungasaurus on display. The museum, it's not completely new. It's more like it's in a new building. It used to be in an older building that closed down. And the university's College of Literature, Science, and Arts made a new $260 million building on campus. Oof. And the new museum's designed in a way to emphasize that science is always changing. They also have a mastodon couple and a planetarium. That is quite the building, $260 million. Holy cow. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that includes like lecture halls and stuff like that. It probably does. I couldn't find too many details on it. So that'd be one amazing museum. Well, there is a planetarium. I think those yeah. are on the expensive side to build. Yeah, you're probably right. Maybe they'll show you the Cretaceous sky in there too. Don't think so. <laughs> no. In Texas, there's a traveling museum that's apparently gone to thousands of schools called Dinosaur George. I couldn't find too much info about it, but it looks like they show up to your school with a bunch of fossils and casts. So for students in Texas, you know, could be something that comes up at your school. This next one's pretty cool. So Robert Young is a nine-year-old who created a website called Dinology, which is dedicated to dinosaurs. And because of this website, his whole third grade class was invited to the University of Chicago's Fossil Lab, and they got a tour from paleontologist Paul Serrano. And Robert, not surprisingly, said he wants to be a paleontologist someday. Nice. Yeah, it started off as a project. Everybody had to build a website, but apparently he took it to new <laughs> levels and kept working on it even after the project was due. Yeah, that's how we, well, not when we were nine, but we originally started I Know Dino as a website and then later decided to make the podcast. Yeah. So we we understand. <laughs> yeah, though I don't think I had that much dedication when I was nine. No. <laughs> no. I Maybe to dinosaurs, if websites were around back then, I might have. They were around back then. Well, yeah. <laughs> Last, thanks to Daniel who shared this one with us via Facebook. The Jurassic Park trilogy is now on Netflix, but I think it's only in a few countries. So it's definitely in the UK and Ireland. Possibly other parts of Europe, maybe like Germany, France, other countries. But unfortunately, in the U.S., it looks like we can only watch Jurassic World: The Indominus Escape. It's the Lego version, <laughs> which is pretty good. But you know, it's, it's no it? Jurassic Park trilogy. Yeah. When we were in Taiwan, we could watch that Lego short video, short film, and Jurassic Park Three. Yeah, but none of the other Jurassic Parks or worlds. Yeah. And hopefully we could see the trilogy in the U.S. again soon. It used to be available. That was a couple years ago. I don't really know how the rights work out. Yeah, I'm sure. Like all these Netflix things, they kind of come and go over time. Yeah. But if you're in the U.K. and Ireland, maybe all of Europe, enjoy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, we also have these movies on like Blu-ray or DVD or whatever. So yeah, not but, really hurting. Yeah. But at the same time, press one button and it's there. It's true. It is easier. Or on your phone or, you know. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. 
What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now for our dinosaur of the day, Jeholosaurus, which was a request from Joey the Cavs fan 24. So thanks. It was an ornithischian that lived in the early Cretaceous and what is now China in the Ischian Formation. And from the name Jeholosaurus, you can probably tell that the Ischian Formation is part of the Jehol biota. Right. Its name means lizard from Jehol, which is an old geographical name for western Liaoning and northern Hebei. It was found in 2000 in Liaoning province. Jeholosaurus's body was similar to other ornithopods, and it was bipedal and small. The holotypes of a compressed skull and partial skeleton, it's 28 inches or 71.1 centimeters long with a 14 inch or 35.6 centimeter long tail. A second specimen has been found that has a small skull and some neck vertebrae. And both specimens are either juveniles or subadults. These skulls are incomplete, but it had a short snout and large eyes. It may have been an omnivore. The back teeth and maxillary teeth of Jeholosaurus are fan-shaped, like herbivores, but the premaxillary teeth are longer and more narrow, like carnivores. It was described in 2000 by Xu Xing and others, and the type species is Jeholosaurus shenguanensis, and the species name refers to the geographical area of Shenyuan where the fossils were found. Smaller nithopods are rare in East Asia, so there needs to be more work done to further establish the phylogeny of Jeholosaurus. It reminds me a little bit of some of the ones from Australia. The little ornithopods. Mm -hmm. And our fun fact of the day is that the term conservat lagerstate is used for amazing paleontological sites that capture more detail than a typical site. This keeps coming up in several recent finds. So lagerstate is a combination of two German words, or just one German word, since we know how German is, you can just kind of put words together and make a new word. (laughs) So lager 
means storage or warehouse, and stata means place or site. So I think of it like a warehouse full of paleontological treasures is sort of what it means. And then conservat means conservation. So when you combine it with conservat lagerstata, it's like this warehouse full of conserved fossils. And the conservation part of it really means that it's unusually high detail. So some examples of conservat lagerstata are the Solnhofen limestone, which included an Archaeopteryx feather. There's also the Burgess shale, which captured part of the Cambrian explosion, includes tons of really cool soft tissue animals. There's the Tana site, which we recently covered, that captures the Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary in a lot of detail. And then potentially the Jinju formation with those really cool dinosaur skin impressions from the bottom of those tiny dinosaur prints the authors called a conservat lagerstata as well. And I think that was partly because they mentioned, quote, a large number of excavated specimens still under investigation, end quote. Nice. So we can expect to see more. I think so, yeah. And hopefully they're really impressive to warrant this sort of title. The term doesn't really have any hard definition, though. So if you're really excited about your find, it seems like a paleontologist could basically always claim that it counts as a conservat lagerstata. Rolls off the tongue. It's sorta. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And also check out our page at Patreon, patreon.com slash I Thanks again and until next time. Good day.